Real people. Real opinions. Real talk radio. The multi-award-winning Niall Boylan Show. Classic Hits. Now, first up today, if you were listening to the news bulletins a little earlier this morning, you will have heard a very stark story making the headlines. Young Irish women are suffering the highest levels of moderate to severe symptoms of depression amongst their generation in the EU, according to a new report. Irish young women are the most depressed in the entire European Union. The study highlights how the pressures on teenagers and young women from cyberbullying, eating disorders such as bulimia or anorexia, homelessness and financial pressures are taking a severe toll on our young women's mental health. The extent of psychological anguish felt by women here between the ages of 15 and 24 years shows what can only be described as very worrying levels of hidden mental health struggles. Now, in most European countries, women in this age group were more likely to suffer from depression than young men. That's a very interesting finding because we always are told that um, statistics for suicide, that it's young males in particular who are more inclined to take their own lives. But it seems, according to this study at least, that it's young women who are most likely to to suffer from depression. The report from Eurofound, the EU agency for the improvement of living and working conditions, shows that the greatest gender gaps are in Ireland, Denmark, Germany and Sweden. 17% of that age group of women here in Ireland report being either moderately or severely depressed compared to an EU average of 9%. So the Irish rate is essentially double what the EU average would be. Only in Cyprus, Greece and Lithuania were there higher percentages of young men with depressive symptoms. Across the EU, 14% of young adults are at risk of depression. It says 4% of young people aged from 15 to 24 suffer from chronic depression. Child and youth homelessness is being fingered in this report as possibly one of the reasons why they have increased dramatically, not just here in Ireland. We're used to the statistics, over 10,000 homeless people in Ireland, but also that is proving to be a problem in other European member states in the past decade. In Ireland, France and Denmark, around one in three registered homeless people are children. Now, at the same time, a significant proportion of young people in Europe face difficulties accessing vital health and public services. Ian O'Grady, who's the president of the Psychological Society of Ireland, has said that anxiety is one of the main difficulties that young people are encountering in the modern age and yet recent HSE figures indicate that only 38% of the recommended number of psychologists are actually working in the HSE's child and adolescent mental health services. Ian O'Grady said children and young people who are in need of the service should have access to the full range of multidisciplinary supports available but I think we hear from this programme and from many other um, ways of evidence that that's just not happening. Those services are just not there for young people. They're not there for older people, but they're certainly not there for younger people. So the figures also indicate higher rates of self-harm and eating disorders such as anorexia and bulimia. And it's really a stark insight, I think, this report into the level of distress as our mental health services remain in crisis. At the end of March, there were 2,738 children waiting for mental health treatment. So they may have been assessed, they may have been as deemed as needing it, but they were still having to wait. How can that be in this day and age? Now, we want to delve into the report a little bit more. Psychotherapist, author and mental health and wellbeing professional Stella O'Mahony joins me on the line now. Stella, thanks very much for joining us on The Nile Boylan Show. This really is a very um, startling report that such a high proportion of our young women here in Ireland, aged 15 to 24, are really suffering with their mental health. They're saying they're depressed. 
Yeah, and I, I meet them quite often. I, I have a private practice and I meet them quite often and they are depressed. They're very distressed. And uh, as you pointed out, anxiety is the most common mental health issue in Ireland. And it's the one that I certainly seem to deal with most, mostly. But, you know, what you were saying about the statistic, it's quite interesting because when you, have to, when you have to delve into them, because more girls are depressed, there's no doubt about that, than boys. And yet one could argue that the boys are disconnected and they don't quite know they're depressed or they're not in touch. And so more boys turn to suicide. So it's not as if, it's not as if that the girls aren't definitely more depressed. It's just the girls are more in touch with the fact that they're depressed. And more so likely to say it, maybe. More likely to get help, more likely to seek help. So that, that, in a way, you could argue is better than somebody. I remember I once, I give a lot of talks in schools, and I, I once spoke to a woman who was a principal of first an all-boys school and then an all-girls school. And I said, wow, what was the difference? And she said, you know, it was funny because with the girls, there was dramas every day and there was all sorts of distress. And yet with the boys, there wasn't, but there was an extraordinary rate of suicide. Mm. So there's nothing um, there. Yeah. There's nothing there um, physiologically or psychologically, uh, psychologically that would make one gender more prone to depression or anxiety than the other. You think that this problem is actually universal. It's just that the girls are maybe more forthright in dealing with it. They can identify it. They can identify that they're feeling anxious or they're feeling depressed or down, and they're more likely to, to verbalise it. The boys are internalising it. To be very honest, I don't think we've quite figured that out, whether it is more a boys or a girls, but it certainly looks that way. It looks that the girls are looking for help and they're, they're more in touch with their feelings, which is, which is good. But I do meet an awful lot of girls who are really shattered. They really are. They look beautiful. They're very polished. Their social media is very impressive. And when they go to me, they're shattered inside. They're just shattered. And it's a very fragile sense of well-being that they have, that you would swear that they, they're fine. And it's only within the confines of my office that you can see, wow, there's, there's very little holding them together there. They're very distressed inside. So it's, it's a very lonely life because when you're pretending to be happy and you're really, really distressed, it's probably the most difficult kind of thing to pull off, if you follow me. It's much easier to just be depressed and have people look after you. Now, Stella, and, a lot of people will automatically go to point the finger at social media. And they will say that it is girls under pressure, putting pressure on themselves, society putting pressure on them to maintain that perfect, that sense, that veneer of perfection. I look amazing. My friends are amazing. My life is amazing. Everything is wonderful. But underneath, as you say, they're incredibly vulnerable and very fragile. Is it so simplistic or can it be so, so simplistic? Were women of, you know, who are now in their 40s and 50s or 60s and 70s, why didn't women of those eras, who you could argue maybe had on the face of it tougher lives, they faced maybe more adversity, they faced maybe more challenges, uh, they were more downtrodden. Why weren't they depressed and anxious or were they? Well, I think they were. I, I'm 44 and I certainly was very depressed and very isolated and anxious when I was a teenager. At my most depressed and anxious when I was a teenager than any other time in my life. And nobody would have known it. So I do think that uh, people are saying it more now and while we freak out about the numbers and we talk about how awful it is, part of me thinks, well, at least they're seeking help. At least we know about it. Mm. I'd rather know about it than keep the monster under the rug, which is, I would argue, and I would say even like, let's say my mother's generation, I'd say it was an awful lot of heartache, an awful lot of unsaid distress, an awful lot of women taken to the bed, an awful lot of serious isolation and distress that just didn't get spoken about. 
And so I, I don't think these are all fla- snowflakes who are all losing it. I think the human condition is what's at play here. I do think that it's very hard sometimes to be happy in this life. I do think life can be really difficult at different stages, really difficult. And you, and you really do need a hand sometimes. And do you think that um, the teenagers and into young adulthood are, are amongst those points that are particularly challenging? Yeah, I think there are. I think girls um, in particular, they're A, they're developing earlier, physically, they're developing earlier. And B, they're being kind of cosseted and they're being made children of, if you follow me, they're, 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 they're you know what I mean, they're still believing in, in maybe kind of little kind of fairy stories as such. And yet their bodies are developing. So there's a, a, a kind of an incongruence that's happening there that you're kind of like, wow, you're still talking about two fairies and, you know, Santi and things like that. And mm. well, don't do that very sweet. And yet you've got your period. And th- this is happening quite a lot. So I think those, th- those boys of their age group are not developing half as fast. This is just biology. The boys are definitely developing later. And the girls, I think, are in a very... And it's a, it's a real notable marker for a, a girl's mental health. The girls who develop earlier find it harder to have mental well-being because it's very, very hard on them. You know what I mean? It's very hard to have your period when you're 10 and you don't actually have the maturity to handle yourself. Yeah, yeah. And th- th- that is really, really difficult. I really think it is. And what about what we're always hearing about the sexualization of children and that that's happening at a younger age? Is that bringing even more pressure to bear on our young women in particular and our young men, but, but are more women in the context of, of this item that we're discussing today, seeing as this is what the figure is, is, this is what the statistics certainly seem to be denoting that women, young women are, are in a bad way? Yeah, it's a huge issue. I feel that so many children who've come to me Almost in primary school, it's okay. Sometimes in sixth class, it isn't, but almost it is. Then they come into first year, and these kids are, I would argue, incredibly immature in their mind. Like, you know, really quite babyish about what they like and things like that. And yet, boys are sexualizing them from the moment they go into first year. I remember two girls, and lovely girls, come into me. Literally, these girls were sweet, innocent kids. And the first week of first year, both of them, there were uh, both girls, um, the boys felt their bum and they were mm-hmm. sexualizing them. And it, this is in assembly and all having a laugh. And the girls are just turned around horrified and they just walked into a seedy, sexualized world that they had no idea of. I think the drop for the girls from being sweet and innocent and dolls and sweetness to that is horrifying for them. They don't expect it. They aren't particularly warned about it. And it's incredibly babyish, their life, until suddenly it's seedy and sexualized. And they're kind of told, to, they've been told for many years, and you're right about social media, it does impact them. They've been told for many years, it's all about your image, it's all about your looks. From the age of eight or nine, they're doing these pictures and they have little bunny ears coming out of their, their ears. And they're, you know, taking these silly little selfies, which is all fine, except it's emphasizing their looks and emphasizing their image. And then suddenly at around about 13, it gets very sexualized, very quickly in a very pornified kind of way. Mm. And they, um, they fall from a cliff with distress. They're like, what the hell is this? And it's all about my image and everybody has to fancy me. And I haven't really given much thought about this, but I know it's very, very, very important for me to look good. That's what they're registering. And so no wonder these girls are sexting. No wonder they're sending these messages. No wonder they are. 
And what about the pressure that girls are putting on themselves in their peer groups? I mean, in this okay. study, they are citing cyberbullying. Um, so, so clearly that's from amongst their own peer groups. Yeah, I think, you know, it's very interesting the impact of oestrogen and testosterone because the impact of testosterone is if you have a problem with somebody, you, you actually just want to fight it out. It's quite direct and it's quite aggressive. The impact of oestrogen is you have a fight with somebody, if you or I, presuming both of us are filled with oestrogen, our way of being aggressive is to attack the other person's social realm. So my way to attack you would to make, make you less popular or to make other people dislike you or to make people like me more. And so by putting a smartphone in the pocket of a girl who's got all these oestrogen kind of surges as such from the, from the age of 10 onwards, you're, you're very much, she'll all, be all about connecting with other people or disconnecting her enemies with other people. And the smartphone is the kind of primary mode of connecting. And so that's how they try and get at their friends. While a boy might hit their mate yeah. or, you know, throw the ball at them aggressively, the girl will start a WhatsApp group that excludes that girl. And it's, the girl has the math method to do it because of smartphones. The boy doesn't have a gun in his pocket that he pulls out and he shoots somebody. Well, the girl not. has, yeah, but the girl has the equivalent of the gun in her pocket because she's got the smartphone where it's all about take that girl down with your connections. So I'm not surprised at all when you look at the impact of oestrogen that the girls are going mad. It's not that girls are bitches. I just don't buy that idea. It's just girls' way of communicating and handling themselves is all about connecting and disconnecting. And the smartphone is really exacerbating their way. Does does life get easier then if if we can put this down in part at least to teenage pressures? It was always this way. Throw in the hormones. Throw in the girls being nasty to each yeah. other. Throw in the social media. Throw in the financial pressures, which are coming, which yeah. are which are very clear um, in this survey here. They're pointing to homelessness and people and people living. Love, yeah, all of these pressures. But yeah. does it get better then? Maybe when you get into your early or mid twenties. Do things naturally improve a little or do you just become better able to cope with it? Do your peer groups maybe get smaller and instead of having 10 girls who hang around together uh, on the way to and from Children school, it becomes your, your your two or three or four core friends that you genuinely properly yeah. communicate with? I think if it's handled well and if you're surrounded by love by your parents and your family and, your, you, know, and you learn a few life lessons between 10 and 20 about the universe and about how some friends can be great fun but not great friends, and other friends can be great as fair-weather friends, but when the going gets tough, they're pretty awful. When, when you can be that and that you can learn those lessons, by the time you're reaching your 20s, you've learned some coping mechanisms and you've learned, I actually thrive better with two or three good friends and I don't thrive in these sprawling groups. Or you learn that, you know, when I'm alone, I need to do X, Y and Z or else I get distressed. So you do learn coping mechanisms and that's our role as parents, I suppose, is to teach our kids become self-aware and to realise what they need in life and to realise how to get it so emotionally that they'll feel more the more content of themselves. And that that's that's the grand plan. It doesn't always come to pass, but that is certainly how one would hope. But I do think the teenage years, I think we forget how awful it is. Mm. And I'd like to say, I actually don't forget for some quirk of biology. I don't know why, but I don't. And I think we forget and dismiss the, the horror and the pain and the isolation that you can feel when you're 14 and you feel nobody likes you. Yeah. And not forget that. Stella, what about alcohol? Does, is alcohol playing a role? And what are you seeing in yeah. your private practice with teenagers? Because we're hearing sort of empirical evidence and actual fact that teenagers are drinking less yeah. than, say, mine and your generation well, would have yeah. done. Is well, that the case? I, 
I think, again, you know, the way you have to look at statistics and you have to penetrate them. They're drinking less, but what would be more accurate is to say they're drinking less often, but when they drink, they're drinking way more quantities. So, so they're kind of going out and getting blitzed, not very often, but maybe four times a year, they're getting absolutely hammered. While I, you could say, well, I got hammered as a kid, and I say, yeah, not to this extent. You know what I mean? While there was, there was a more general, certainly they don't even touch beer. They go yeah. straight for vodka. Yeah, I've and, heard that from my teenager, that kids yeah. in his peer group, yeah, they drink vodka. And at a very young age, it's yeah. very common. In first year, this is the big shock and difference I've seen. That like for me, when I was growing up, first and second year was still vaguely kind of babyish in a mm. way. While I see in first year, literally the first month of first year, they're becoming sexualized and there's talk of drink immediately. And this is, you know, like I'm based in Burrinoffley, like I'm not based mm. in, in high city living. And it, it's quite noticeable that um, these, these kids are really quite quickly exposed to alcohol. And there's talk of alcohol and there's talk of weed pretty much immediately once they hit secondary school. And they don't do it often, but when they do it, they're getting absolutely out of their head. And so that's why the statistics are saying, yeah, they're not drinking as much as, like, yeah, they're not drinking as much quantity. Yeah. But that, that doesn't mean it's healthy. Now, I, I discussed in the introduction there the waiting list, the end of March, the HSE waiting list for child and adult mental health services. 2,738 children waiting for treatment, uh, waiting to be seen at the end of March. That's possibly risen by maybe even a couple of hundred in the last couple of weeks. It's, clearly that is not working. Clearly there's a bottleneck in the system there and yeah. we have these teenagers, both boys and girls, who are suffering from anxiety, who are finding it hard, who are struggling on a daily basis. So what is the answer? If we can't help them by means of our health service efficiently and effectively and some parents may have means that they can hire somebody like you to help their children privately and many others just simply cannot. What is the answer here? What are we well, doing wrong? I would like to say that you know, waiting for services is the most destructive thing you could ask your child to do because when they need help, they need help now. Yeah. And waiting around for six months for some sort of... Because then they've built up the, the, the treatment into a magic wand and everything is going to happen when I get off that waiting list and everything is going to come together next November when we finally get to see somebody. And actually, that's not the way treatment goes. It's slow and it's gentle and it's... It's bending you slightly towards another way of thinking. And this idea that it's a magic wand really destroys the therapy in a way. It's very bad for it. I do think there's an awful lot more services out there. One thing is that it's very, very messy. So the likes of me and many counsellors and psychotherapists like me, we provide, you know, somebody rings me. And if I have a space, by the way, I'm fully booked now, but if I have a space, I very often and do right now provide either low cost or no cost counselling to people who explain their financial situation. And most counsellors do, but I find a lot of people don't access it. They don't look for it. They don't seek free counselling or they don't seek low cost counselling. Probably unaware that it's there. I would say very unaware that it's there. And they're waiting on the the CAMS list, the Child Adolescent Mental Health Services. And I would say don't wait. While you're waiting, access low cost counselling so that there isn't a build up yeah. When I finally get into this service, everything is going to happen because it won't happen like that. And you'll feel very deflated and so will the child. Much better that they're seeing somebody and then they might see somebody else because that person doesn't suit. It's very often like finding a friend. It's like finding a, a partner. In life. It won't be the first 
and it mightn't be the second mm. or it mightn't be the third. You find a therapist that, that suits you. Mm. And I, I would definitely say ask for help. Ask for kind of low cost and no cost because it is out there. It's just what the real problem, I would argue, is it's not joined up. So you could look, let's say I'm in Blankstone right now, you could look up for low-cost Blankstone and you'll just find this realm of information, but you won't find anything kind of structured of, here's where you go. Yeah. That's the hard bit. Some people find that very hard to navigate. Stella, and though, maybe sh- they need a friend sh- to should, help them with that. Should we um, be looking at this from an educational perspective, though? If this is something that's widespread, it's across the vast majority of our teenagers, it's endemic. It always has yeah. been, you say, and it probably always will be into the future whether financial circumstances or social media or whatever should we be, this is is this a topic that we should be actually covering in our primary schools mental well-being and how we deal with our interpersonal relationships yeah i'd love it i'd love it if we did and not only that it'll something along the lines of and you will probably have to access services in the future and there's many ways to access access services they aren't a magic wand but they will help and you will You'll have a lot of kind of falls as you're trying to get the right person for you. The whole concept of counselling, I think people don't really know what it is. And they think when they meet this person, I hear they're very good. And so let's say somebody might try to see me and like, like I say, I'm fully booked. So I, I offer them. I recommend other Somebody people else, to yeah. okay. And they go, no, 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 I want to see you. And I'm like, nah, it's not like that. It's the process <laughs> rather than the person. Yeah. Psychotherapist, you know author I mean? and mental health and well-being professional Stella O'Malley, thanks very much for talking to us on the Nile Boylan Show on this topic today. Real people, real opinions, real talk radio. The multi-award winning Nile Boylan Show. Classic hits.